ask if you would, if you would join with me in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time we have this morning to come together as a, to church, as a church family and to sing our praises to you, to open your word together, Father, to worship you in many ways. And I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would, Lord, open our eyes and open our hearts to what you want to teach us today. Father, we thank you just for the, the privilege that it is to gather together in, in freedom like this. There's, um, Lord, so many people around the world who don't have the freedoms to gather. Lord, today is a national day, an international day for, of prayer for the persecuted church. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are suffering. Lord, we pray that you would give them the, fa the faith to stand strong in the midst of their suffering. And Lord, we here never want to forget the, the, just the privileges that we have as we can gather it to worship in freedom. And Father, help us to turn our hearts over to you, to open up our hearts. We come with, with many distractions, many thoughts on our minds, with many trials that we're going through. And Lord, at times we can allow those things to, to turn our attention away from you and to your, the, 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 your grace and the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would turn our thoughts and minds back to you this morning. And Father, help us to truly come before you with hearts that are open to being transformed by your word. Father, we thank you for, for who you are. We thank you for calling each of us that, that know you as Savior into a saving relationship. And Lord, I pray that your light would shine through in this community around us, that the gospel would be proclaimed and that we would see people responding to your message. Father, open our minds and hearts now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've had a, um, two, actually the last two sermons here. I have to say that if, um, if Tom's last two sermons and the one that I'm about to preach this morning were reviewed by most church growth conferences around the country, um, they would tell us that these are probably three sermons that we should never preach again if we want people to come back to this church. And the reason I say that is because we're um, the last two sermons, and today we're talking about sin. And there's this kind of unwritten rule in American churches today, which is sad, but it's like you need to preach what people want to hear. And what we're preaching this morning, and what Tom has preached for the last two weeks, as we go through Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, is the reality that all of us are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And so I'm going to probably depress you a little bit more this morning. And Tom gets the joy next week of coming in because we're going to preach through Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And the gospel message of Jesus Christ comes through loud and clear in verse 21. And we're stopping today at verse 20. So I promise so I'm not going to send you home too depressed because we've changed our format this morning. And we're going to end the service in communion. And Pastor John has the opportunity to come up and point your attention and focus to Jesus Christ as you leave this morning with the hope of Jesus Christ on your minds. But until then, I have to do my job and depress you a little bit more. And um, years ago, there was um, the late kind of great theologian and preacher, Harry Ironside, um, once asked a man this question. And he said, sir, do you realize that you're a lost sinner? And the man looked back at Harry and he said, oh, well, of course I do. We're all sinners. And Harry said, well, you know, that's all well and good, but do you yourself realize that you are a lost sinner? And the man hesitated and he thought about it for a moment and he 
he replied back and he said, well, I guess I do. Um, he said, you know, I, he said, but I, I'm, not a, I'm not a bad sinner. He said, um, I'm actually, if I think about it, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good sinner. He said, I try and I, I do my best. Now, that is really bad theology. And the sad part is, there are so many people today who in their minds, not that they think they can sin better than everyone else, but they think that they are good sinners. Now, if we were to have a continuum across this um, platform here, I think a lot of people think that God graves on a curve. And they look at it and they think, well, you know what, the really bad people, the murderers, the rapists, the bank robbers, you know, they're over here. And they look at it, this continuum comes off. You ever saw a bell curve, you kind of have the middle here. And then over here, they think, well, you know what, compared to them over there, I'm pretty good. And they actually think that that goodness is going to earn them favor with God and that they're in a pretty good standing. Now, what I find kind of ironic is anyone who has that mindset that God grades on a curve, almost every one of them, if you talk to them, kind of place themselves on this side of the curve anyway. And they look at, well, all compared to all of those, I'm doing pretty well. But you see, the point is, and what we're going to see in the passage that we look at today is that God does not grade on a curve. The passage that we're looking at is in Romans chapter 3, and um, Charles Spurgeon back in the 1800s in, in London, famous preacher, um, preached from this very same passage, and he titled his sermon, How to Go to Hell with a Positive Attitude. Now, I um, took a little twist on that because I actually thought it was a pretty good title if you look at what we're covering this morning, and I titled today's sermon, Good Enough to go to hell. Because here's the problem. As you look at this continuum from, let's say, the really bad people over here all the way down to the self-righteous people who think they're pretty good all the way down here, and probably by the world standards, they might live a pretty good life. The only problem we have is, if you looked at this, picture it as a conveyor belt, and everybody's on that conveyor belt, and guess where it's taking them? Right to hell. Because all of us are held accountable for our sins. And God is going to show us in this passage today and what we've been looking at the last two weeks is that all of us have a really terrible condition and that in God's eyes, we are sinners. We are hopeless sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Now, the good news we're going to get to, especially next week, but I'm going to weave it in today, and that is that God recognized our sinful condition. And he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who's the only person, helps that he was divine, but he's the only person that ever lived a life on this earth worthy of God's favor. He lived a perfect and holy and sinful life and took all of our sins upon himself. And he became God's one and only means for us to be removed from that conveyor belt that I talked about that was taking us to an eternity in hell. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. So as bad as the bad news is that we're going to cover this morning, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is so much better. So we'll be looking at that in the coming weeks because Romans really delves into that. And I think in a lot of ways, Paul was setting the stage in Romans chapters 1 through 3 of showing us something that we needed to know. And that was our lost and sinful condition to make us realize that we can do nothing about it in, of our, in and of ourselves, 
to set the stage for the rest of the gospel that's going to come clearly out that comes through Jesus Christ. Well, we saw last week in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, that we looked at the, contra- the, the, the contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles, and what Paul showed a little bit was that really, in reality, the Jews were a privileged group. Think about it. The Jewish nation were the ones that had all of the covenant promises going all the way back to the line from Noah to Abraham to Moses to David. So all of God's covenant promises came within the nation of Israel to the Jews. We had the Jews were clearly given the law by Moses back in the time of the Exodus. And we saw that all of the prophets that followed in through, you know, after the time of David and, and, and Saul, we saw all the prophets that came with the message of God came and delivered it to primarily to the nation of Israel. And ultimately, Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, the Messiah, was a Jew himself that came from the nation of Israel. So the Jews were a pretty privileged group of people. And now, Paul, that helps to know that in your mind as we read verse 9 in chapter 3. I'd like to um, ask if any of our, anyone here would need a Bible. Our ushers are coming up. Just raise your hand. They'll be glad to get a Bible for you, and um, you can read along in the Scripture. I'll put it up on the screen as well. But if you don't have a Bible at home, please take this Bible home as our gift to you. Um, we'd love you to have it, but just raise your hand. They'll get one to you. I'm going to start reading in chapter three, Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Now, again, the background, this is Paul writing this. He puts himself into the category of one of the Jews. So Paul says he's one of the we. Are we better than they, the Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So we see here is that Paul is showing us that, yes, God chose the Jewish people, They had all of these privileges in their lives. If anyone could earn favor with God and earn their own salvation, it would have been the Jews. And what Paul is giving us here, are they better than, are are the Jews better than the Gentiles? And Paul says, absolutely not. He gives a resounding no to basically say that all of us are in the same boat. And he uses this phrase and he says, we are all under sin at the end of verse 9. And that's an important statement to understand what it really means. Because when you look at the fact that we're all under sin, to me this is like a summary. If you go back from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where we start talking about the focus becomes sin, all the way through, Romans chapter 3, verse 9 is like a summary verse of those first two chapters all the way up to this. When Paul says, no, our problem, it's not a matter of Jew or Gentile. The ultimate problem is that every single one of us is under sin. That's the first point that I want to make this morning. And if we want to personalize it, I can say, you are under sin. Now, how do we understand what it means to be under sin? Back a number of years ago, quite a few years ago, the Times ran an essay contest. And they had people write in essay responses to a question, a prompt that they put out in the, in the, in the magazine and the paper. And the question was this, what is the matter with the world today? Now, you would think that people could write volumes on what the problems are, what's the matter with the world today. The winning essay happened to be the shortest essay that they received. And it was written by a Christian theologian and writer by the name of G.K. Chesterton. 
And his response went back to the paper. He said, Dear Sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. So he understood this whole concept of what it means to be under sin. That he was a hopelessly lost sinner. And if you think, what is the matter with the world today? He knew in his heart, it's me. It's you. It's every single one of us. Because we were born sinners and we are hopelessly lost. That word, under, it's a Greek word, to be under sin. The Greek word is the same word that means to be under the control of someone or something else. It's used as a military term to show that a soldier is under the authority of a general. So it's a common military term that was used back in that culture. So to be under sin, it means that we are under the control of sin. We're enslaved to it. Our problem is not that we commit sins. We all commit sins. Even after knowing Jesus Christ as Savior, we all commit sins. Our problem is that we're enslaved to it. And that's what it means to be under sin. You see, we were born sinners. We started sinning as soon as we could. And we haven't stopped ever since. And I can guarantee you that when you leave here today, and probably even before the sermon is over, you're committing sins against God. But it's not going to end. And that's the battle that we have. Our problem is not that we commit sins. Our problem is that we are under sin, we're enslaved by it, and therefore we're in rebellion against God. And that's the condition, the problem that we have. Paul goes on. Matter of fact, not just Paul, but pretty much all of the New Testament writers give a description in other imagery of what it means to be under sin. Paul gives a number of them. I'm just going to turn to two others right now. Uh, one of them is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. So if you want to take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, I'll put it on the screen as well. Paul here writes, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So what Paul's showing here says that by nature, we were children of wrath, even as the rest. So what does it mean to be under sin? That's a pretty vivid description when Paul says, you are a child of wrath, even as everyone else, even as the rest. So we see that we're children of wrath. And then Paul uses another illustration in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Romans 6, 6 says, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be, might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now, it's a pretty cool picture that Paul gives here. He, he's talking about, okay, we're, we're lost in our sins, and here we have Jesus Christ who came to the earth, who died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins, but after Jesus, when he died on the cross, he was, he was buried. So it says here that just like Christ was crucified on the cross, your old self, your sin nature, who you were, before knowing Jesus Christ, that old person was crucified with Jesus Christ on the cross. 
It wasn't like you just needed a little tweak to become a better person. It wasn't that there was a little adjustment that needed to be made so that you could become righteous. It wasn't anything that you could do. What had to happen was that your old nature needed to die. And if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sin nature was nailed to that cross and was crucified with Jesus Christ. And you were radically transformed into a new person. Now, it's not that that new person became any less of a sinner. You continue to sin. I continue to sin. But what happened was, instead of us trying to be good enough to earn righteousness, what God miraculously did was he took the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, and he gave it to you, purely out of his grace. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. But when your sin nature was crucified with Christ, you still keep sinning, but you are no longer enslaved to sin. You become a child of God. The Holy Spirit is what now controls you, even though you do fall into sin and continue to sin. But your sin nature was crucified. And Paul uses the, the imagery here because it had to happen. Why? Because we were slaves to sin. That's what it means to be under sin that we're under the control of something else. And that is, we're under the control, we're slaves to sin. And thankfully, God recognized that and sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. So we go back to Romans chapter 3. Paul continues, he uses that analogy a lot of the Jew and Gentile relationship. Now, if you're like me, I don't wake up at night thinking about the Jews and the Gentiles. It's kind of like a different culture for us. I want to draw it into our time, into what maybe is a little more common thinking for us. If you um, grew up in the church or if you've been at the church for a year, a couple years or whatever, think of it in terms of the religious and the irreligious people. And the religious are people that think, man, I have certain things coming to me. Um, picture, picture a church. We don't have it here. I was going to use the illustration of like a big stained glass window. But say, you know, well, my granddaddy paid for that window. And you ever hear that thinking in church? You know, I have like, well, yeah, well, that was, my family's been sitting in that pew for the last 150 years. Um, it's also people that think, you know, what? sometimes they can serve on the elder board. They can teach Sunday school. They can go on missions trips. They can be the biggest givers financially to the church. But you know what? They've never come to the point of recognizing the true reality of their sinfulness and trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And what they think is, by me coming to church every Sunday, by doing all of these good things for the church, I am earning God's favor, and I'm, don't, I am in not need, I'm not in need of a Savior. And that's the sad part about the religious, good Christians. They don't see the dreadful condition of their sinful hearts. And they never come to putting their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And when God looks at them, he's not grading our sins on a curve. Sin is sin. And just like those bad sinners on the other end of the curve, the murderers and the rapists and the sort, God has seen all of them simply as sinners deserving of hell because they've never accepted the grace that comes through Jesus Christ and the what he did for us on the cross. So we look at it and we see it's not so much a matter of Jew and Gentile to us, but it can be a matter of 
those who are good Christians and those who know that they're not. We're all sinners. Now, Paul, Paul goes on, and what he does here to prove his point, to show that our, our sinfulness is, he's speaking to a Jewish audience primarily. These are a lot of Jewish converts in Rome. He's writing to the Christians in Rome, but a lot of them came out of a Jewish background. To nail his point home that we are all desperate sinners, what Paul does, he strings together in verses 10 through 17, actually 10 through 18, he strings together a whole string of Old Testament quotations. Now, to save us time this morning, if you have your bulletins, what I did was I, on the outline I gave in the bulletin, I break the, broke this down into three sections. And in each of those sections, I referenced the Old Testament passage that Paul quoted here in Romans chapter 3. So if you want a little bit of homework, when you go home, you can read through Romans 3, 10 to 18, and then the Old Testament passages, you can look them up and see what it was that Paul quoted here. But what Paul is doing is he's, he's referring to the Old Testament as his authority to say, God has been telling us this for centuries, that we are all desperate sinners. And as, as you look at 10 through 18, I broke it down into three sections because the next point that I want to make is that sin destroys relationships. And keep that in your mind as we read through Romans 3, verses 10 to 18, and in your bulletin, you'll notice, if you look at the outline, I broke it down, 10 through 12 is one section, 13 through 17 is the next, and in verse 18, again, is a separate one. I'll explain that in a moment, but let's, let's read this first. This is verses 10 to 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. I think Paul's trying to get a point across here. If you pick up in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Mentioned that sin destroys relationships, and I broke this into three sections. The first point I'd like to make in verses 10 through 12, and I'll go back to that on the screen for us. What we see here in verses 10 to 12 is that sin destroys our relationship with God. We have a desperately broken relationship with God because of our sin. If you look in verse 12, I mean verse 10, he points out here, he says that in all of history, there is none who are righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. And he's talking about spiritual understanding here. And what Paul's saying is that in and of ourselves, apart from the Holy Spirit working in us, none of us understand the situation that we're in, our lost condition. We do not recognize our need for a Savior and we fail to recognize that God gave us that Savior in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. We just, on our own, we don't understand. They have, they have turned aside. Together they have become useless. What a word that is to be called, I mean, basically, outside of our relationship with Jesus Christ, he's calling us useless. That is a Greek word. It's the same word that's used to describe rotten milk, I mean, spoiled milk and rotten fruit. That's what we're like apart from Jesus Christ. 
Can you get much worse than like, you know, spoiled milk and rotten fruit? It's really not good for anything except for to be thrown away. And that's the condition of our lives apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. God looks upon us probably the same way that we look upon rotting fruit or spoiled milk. That's how desperate our situation was apart from, in our broken sinful condition, apart from what Jesus Christ had done. So in verses 10 through 12, what we see is that sin has broken, badly broken, destroyed our relationship with God. And now we go on in verses 13 through 17, and we can see that sin destroys our relationship with others. If we go through in verse 13, he says, their throat is an open grave. It's a pretty graphic picture, isn't it? If you think about an open grave, think of like death and decay. And it's like what comes out of your mouth is like an open grave. Now, some of you are sitting here thinking, well, if you ever smelled my spouse's breath in the morning, it's probably true. But think about it. Everything that comes out of us from the inside, in God's eyes, is like, it's like death and decay. He goes on in, in this and he says, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The tongue, if you think about here, in the book of Proverbs, in the book of James, we see the damage that we can do with our words to other people. If you go on, it says here, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The poison of asps, that's probably referring to the Egyptian cobra, a deadly snake. And it's saying that our words, our deceitful words, have the power of a poisonous snake and can do that kind of damage to our relationships with other people. So he goes on in verse 16 and he says, 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the the path of peace they have not known. So what we're seeing here is not only are we destructive with our words, but in our sin nature, apart from Jesus Christ, wherever we go, we bring brokenness and violence and bloodshed with us. See, it shows that the human nature, apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, is a pretty wicked thing. Our words are deceitful. Our actions are violent. Think about over the centuries how people have tried to just put in, institute different things into their lives to earn God's righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. It just can't be done. The Jews, they tried to follow the Old Testament law for so many centuries, but nobody was able to fulfill the law apart from Jesus Christ. Today, we see other religions, they'll put things in place, like trying to do, say, a, a pilgrimage to Mecca or praying so many times in a day, or even maybe closer to home to be just taking a, a prayer and just repeating the prayer over and over again as if it's going to have some kind of saving grace to it. But the only thing that can save us from our sinful condition is Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, if you talk about the kind of the, the, the wickedness of man, even in a political realm, you know, take communism, for example. You know what? Take communism for face value, go back to like 100 years, and it probably sounded pretty good. You know, we're going to take from the very wealthy, and we're going to distribute that money to the poor. There's going to be no more hunger, starvation. There's not going to be poverty. We're going to solve all of these things, and our culture is going to be this utopia where there's no more need and suffering. But what did they leave out of the equation? Sin. We're all sinful people. 
And wherever we go, we spread deceit and destruction. So what communism did was basically it took the wealthy class, took their money away from them, and it gave it to a new bureaucratic leadership and, and privileged people. So the money went from here and it went to here, and the poor and the, were probably in a lot worse place afterwards than they were before because of the sinfulness of mankind and our, the wickedness of our hearts. Now Paul goes on in verse 18 and he gives the summary verse here to this section. He says, he goes back to the relationship with God. And he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. See, it's a cause and effect relationship. Verses 10 through 12, your relationship with God is broken because of your sin. That's the cause. Now, because your relationship with God is broken, your relationships with other people are destroyed and broken because of it. And Paul comes back and he gives a statement. He returns back to our relationship with God. And he said the reason, the cause is, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, fearing God means that we recognize who God is. We understand who God is. We recognize how sinful we are compared to a holy and righteous God. And we start living our lives accordingly in a recognition that it's not fear as if in I'm just totally afraid, and it's kind of that, like you'd be afraid of a ghost. But it's a fear of, wow, look at the majesty of God. And it should grow our love for him because we see the gap, that distance between who God is and who we are. And that's what it means to fear God. And what Jesus came to the earth to do by going to the cross was to fix that broken relationship that you have with God. And as that relationship is restored to where God wanted it to be, your relationship with other people should change as well. So we're no longer living with deceitful words or chasing after what we're after and breaking relationships along the way. And why is that? Because we gain a fear of God and we start to live our lives accordingly. Well, Paul goes in, he wraps up this passage in 19 and 20. And he says this, Now we know... Let me put it on the screen for you. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For th through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, as we look at this, what we're seeing here is, in verses 19 and 20, is that people have tried so hard to justify themselves through the law and through other means. And our problem, I mentioned this earlier, is not that we commit individual sins. Our problem is that we are under sin. And what Paul is showing us here is that one day, every mouth may be, will be closed. Picture the most arrogant, prideful sinner that you know. You probably have someone come into your mind. And don't tell anyone else who it is. But one day, all mouths will be closed. What it's saying is that there's no one who's ever lived that could justify their actions, behaviors, and thoughts before the judgment of God and not be held accountable to that holy God. It's almost like when the passage we're talking about says, every knee will bow. When it comes to judgment day, that everyone is going to see the holiness of our God. And all of a sudden, all of their sinfulness is going to overwhelm them as they stand before God. And nobody 
is going to be able to open their mouth in objection to the judgment of God. And he goes on, and he says here that all the world may become accountable to God. See, that's the final point that I wanted to make this morning, is that you will be accountable for your sins. None of us can avoid it. All of us are under sin. We've been born sinners, and we will be held accountable to God someday for those sins. I want to um, kind of end with an illustration for you. What does all this mean? If I'm um, you know, if we're just this, you know, helpless sinner and we see that our sinful condition is probably far worse than we could ever imagine, what difference does that make in our lives? And what I want to just give you is an illustration because all of us, when you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, you're now put on kind of a different pathway in life. And there's an illustration in a book that was, um, it's called The Gospel-Centered Life, and Robert Thune is the author of this, and he gave this visual picture, and it's called The Cross Chart. And what you see here is conversion is where the fork forms and the, and the, the line just um, starts to go into two. And all the stuff on the left of that, that's your life before knowing Jesus Christ. You come to faith in Jesus Christ. And if you ever heard the phrase, people say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Well, that sounds great. Sounds like something really good to do. But what does it mean? How do I preach the gospel to myself every day? Well, it's reminding ourselves of two things. One, the top line is that we gain a growing awareness of God's holiness. And as we get a growing awareness of God's holiness, we start to fear God, as Paul said there. We deepen our relationship with God. We see the holiness, the righteousness, the majesty of our God. And you'll notice what happens. As you progress through life and you, you're increasing your awareness of God's holiness, what happens to the cross? It gets bigger. You see, as God gets bigger in our lives, the cross gets bigger and we get smaller. Now, there's two lines here, and you have the, the line on the bottom is what Paul's been basically writing about in Romans chapter 3, a growing awareness of my flesh and sinfulness. And the more that we recognize how desperately sinful we are, and we grow in that understanding of our sinfulness, the same thing happens, doesn't it? The cross gets bigger. Watch what happens if we are just oblivious to our sinfulness. We think we can earn our, satisfy God on our own. Do you ever get on that, I, I shouldn't even ask this question, how about when we get on that treadmill of trying to do more for God, as if we're going to earn more of God's favor by how good we are? And what happens is we fail to recognize the depth of our sinfulness. And what happens to the cross? We shrink the cross, don't we? And all of a sudden, instead of Jesus Christ getting bigger, we in our minds start getting bigger. And the cross and Jesus Christ become smaller. Now, I want to encourage all of us. If you want to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean you're going to become any less of a sinner. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Bob, what do you mean? Does that mean that I should just keep on sinning if I'm not going to become any less of a sinner? No, you might gain victory over a sin. Does God want you to be caught up in whatever it might be? Say it could be alcohol. Say it could be, you know, it could be drugs. It could be pride. It could be lust. Well, does God want me to give those things up? Yeah, he does. But you know what? By giving them up, it doesn't mean you're any less of a sinner. So tomorrow, if you stumble in whatever sin it may be, say it's lust. 
If tomorrow you stumble, does that mean that you are any worse and less loved in God's eyes? No, it doesn't. Because you know what? You are a sinner in God's eyes. All of our sins are equal. We can't earn God's favor. But so you say, well, does that mean that I, just, I shouldn't even bother trying to overcome sin? No, what it means is that God wants us to repent. God wants us to recognize our sinfulness. He wants us to turn from it. But he also wants what happens is in, in Christian maturity, you can overcome some sins and you can start growing. And maybe 20 years after being a Christian, you've, you're growing closer to Jesus Christ but you become so much more aware of the sinfulness in your life, you probably at times feel, you should feel more like a sinner than when you started the Christian life 20 years ago because you're starting to recognize the holiness of God so much more and you're starting to recognize your desperate need for a savior. And instead of trying to give up sin because you're trying to earn God's favor, you start giving up sin because you're so in love with Jesus Christ, and it's a gratitude for who he is and what he's done for you, that you don't want to go on sinning anymore. And that's what maturity in the Christian life looks like. But I guarantee you, if you live to be 110, you're going to sin all the way up to being 110 years old. But you know what? Hopefully, your understanding of God's holiness grows. And you have a deeper walk in faith with Jesus Christ along the way. Well, hopefully this morning, I've shown you the desperate condition that each and every one of us is in. And hopefully I've set the stage for you to realize that, man, do we need a Savior in Jesus Christ. And Tom gets the joy of coming in next week in Romans 3.21, where uh, we start seeing a lot more about what Jesus Christ has done for us. But recognize your sinfulness and don't let it be something that you beat yourself up with. But turn yourself to Jesus Christ and recognize that you now have his righteousness and his holiness. And continue living in a deepening relationship with Jesus Christ even though you know the depth of your own sin. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer and as I pray I'm going to ask if um, Pastor John and the worship team will come up and then we'll take communion. Father, we thank you for Paul's very clear pointing out the sin nature that we all struggle with. And Lord, even though we have to walk through life with the sin nature and knowing that we are doing things that are not pleasing to you, Father, we thank you that we have been forgiven. We thank you that Jesus Christ has gone to the cross. He has shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, we will keep on sinning, but Father, I pray that we will continue turning to Christ, recognizing his love for us, and Lord, that we will live our lives for Jesus Christ, that we would turn our thoughts and, and just show our gratitude, our appreciation for what you have done for us. And Lord, we thank you that despite who we are and how sinful we are, you loved us anyway, and you sent your son for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time at the Lord's table is for believers who have rested all of their hope on the death and resurrection of Christ. And so if you are not yet a believer in Christ, we would 
ask that you would refrain from partaking with us until you placed your trust in him, and then you may joyfully partake along with his church. So now I'll ask the ushers to come forward and begin distributing the bread. And it's clear from what Bob has shown us this morning from the scriptures that we are sinners. We're not righteous. We do not deserve God's mercy. And we cannot earn his forgiveness. But now hear the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and he was buried. And on the third day he was raised for our justification in accordance with the scriptures. And he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And if we abandon our trust in ourselves and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for our acceptance with God, we will most assuredly receive mercy and forgiveness and eternal life because that is the promise of the gospel. And the Lord's Supper is a fitting sign of God's mercy because we don't do anything to earn the right to come to his table or to receive the elements. We're just invited to come. And just as we receive into our empty hands the bread and the cup freely offered to us, so too do we receive through the empty hands of faith the crucified and risen Lord Jesus freely offered to us in the gospel. And as certainly as the bread and the juice enter your body, so truly does Christ dwell in your heart by faith and assure you of eternal life. Now we encourage you who are believers who are partaking with us this morning to examine your hearts that you might not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And and so we come to a time of, of confession and we confess our sins not in order to clean ourselves up that we might come to God, but because the table of the Lord is only for sinners who are repenting and trusting in Christ for their salvation. So take a few moments to confess your sin and again, by faith, hold fast to the mercy of Christ. Father, you have prepared for us a feast. And though we are unworthy to sit down as guests, we wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide ourselves beneath his righteousness. 
And while we gaze upon the emblems of the Savior's death, may we ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself as an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free and bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. And as the outward elements nourish our body, so may your indwelling spirit give us life until that day when we hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Amen. Take and eat. This is the body of Christ that was broken instead of yours. I'll have the ushers come forward and begin distributing the cup as we sing.
Take and drink and rejoice. This is the blood of Christ that was shed instead of yours. For as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have fed us at this table that you have united us to Christ and that you have given us a foretaste of that heavenly banquet that we await in your eternal kingdom. Send us out in the power of the Spirit to live and work to your praise and glory for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I invite you to stand and we'll sing one more song together. <laughs> 